Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guests today are Todd McGowan and Ryan Angley. Some of you may remember Todd from a podcast earlier this year when he came on and talked about his fabulous book, Only a Joke Can Save Us, A Theory of Comedy. He's back with Ryan, his co-host. Together, they host the podcast Why Theory. It's a podcast that brings together continental philosophy and psychoanalytic theory together to examine our contemporary world. I'll tell you what, it is a fantastic podcast. It's one of my favorites. So if sometimes people ask me what I listen to, I listen to this one all the time. It's really been incredibly helpful for me intellectually. We had a great time talking. I could talk with these two all day. So with no further ado, I give you Todd McGowan and Ryan Ingley. Todd, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott, for having us. Todd, I should say welcome back. That's right. Uh, because That's we, right. we talked once before about your wonderful book, uh, Only a Joke Can Save Us, which I have, yeah, I don't know how much the book sales spiked after that, but I, I zealously, you know, proselytized for the cause because I think it's a, a fantastic read. Good. I think a lot more people downloaded it illegally from a Russian website, thanks to you. So that's good. <laughs> nice. Nice. No collusion. I get nothing from the Russians. No collusion. Okay. That's pretty good. It's a witch hunt. <laughs> so you guys started a podcast about happy birthday oh, thank anniversary you. this is almost yes. a year right i think the first episode it was, was about, about todd's book october todd's comedy book. yeah 20 yeah. and it was around october 23rd or right, last right. Year. so we're four days away from the anniversary yeah i'm like it's just like a star trek convention right? <laughs> you guys when did the first you know, yeah. yeah so you so your podcast is really interesting it's called why theory and you in the first episode you you frame it a little bit that as trying to sort of bring back theory and and i think most people listening listening to a podcast like that would be like well i mean come on people have theories all the time i got a theory this you know you got a theory that but you're talking very specifically in 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 a lot of centers of higher learning academic circles theories are giving way or theoretical thinking you guys say gives gives ways to historicism empiricism so like the more reliable an academic theory is is sort of almost like the less universal and audacious it is right you fact-based mm -hmm. evidence or empirical based research so basically you it sounds like some of the result of that that frustrates you about intellectual pursuits these days is you say a lot about nothing or you, you wind up sometimes academically saying a whole lot about it very little as opposed to saying something that's universal in, in import and really can illuminate human life yeah that, i think that's perfectly put that that we felt i mean so so you're right it was a response to a kind of academic phenomenon of what we viewed as the dominance of historicism empiricism exactly the things you enumerated and I, I guess our wager was that that kind of, that spilled over into actual life it wasn't just confined to the act the academic world. And so we thought that we could, yeah, I guess you're right. Like a return, an idea of a return to, to like a bringing theory back would be a, a good way to think about it. Like to, as a, as, a, and, and, and with especially the, you know, like a freely avowing the universalist 
nature of theory and what we want to what we want to say mm-hmm. yeah if i could just ryan do yeah you yeah to... just jump in on that yeah is the um like the important thing i mean i don't know if anybody is listening to to us for the first time and hasn't listened to the show but when you know we see say theory we're talking about a uh, sort of rich vein of um continental philosophical discourse that uh, starts um in the enlightenment era maybe start like kant i think is our, our first uh, touchstone um uh, moving uh, Hegel, Marx, uh, Freud, um, Lacan into the um, present day of people like, uh, you know, Joan Kopchak, uh, Mari Rudy, and uh, Alenka Zupancic. And it is uh, why, I mean, I think why we think it's interesting to talk about this or, or why, why we think it's important is that it's um, even within academia, like um, psychoanalytically informed uh, uh, thinking or, or even just uh, references to uh, this like era of continental philosophy it's it's not that common um it's not not a lot of people are on uh this kind of uh, wavelength and partially because i think freud has been so like widely disseminated into culture in ways that are uh, uh rick boothby has a really fascinating line in this book freud is philosopher that like freud has been so widely misunderstood because he's easy to read i think that's like such a fascinating kind of logic like uh like the literal words on the page are kind of easy to get and for that reason like he's been uh, sort of like widely misinterpreted but also part of culture widely more widely than any other thinker that we would have as a touchstone but uh, I don't know. It causes a lot of uh, friction and, and, uh, and tension, uh, his thought in lots of different groups. So we like to try to get into that uh, mind, get into that mindset and get into that um, mode of thought and try to uh, tease out what has sort of been left out of like dominant discourse. And, and most often it is, you know, as we're probably going to talk about um, discourses uh, uh, of desire, um, enjoyment uh, and, and pleasure and, you know, the things that that Freud liked to talk about that made people feel uncomfortable. I had a friend who's, he was a blessed memory now, but he was a pretty talented psychiatrist and pen trained. And he was a guy who still did a lot of talk therapy, which a lot of psychiatrists don't do anymore. Right. And he said to me, you know, that everything I do is hermeneutical mm. in nature. Right. Is, is, is interpret- But I think most clinicians don't want to think of that, themselves that way. And so you often hear phrases like this, right? Like, well, Freud was really just doing philosophy mm. as that's just a way to dismiss what sure. he's saying. Right. Well, then then it can't really mean anything about yeah. human nature. Yeah. Right. Because it doesn't we don't have some theory we tested out among 48 left handed, you know, blonde people in lower Michigan, you know, that re- now that's knowledge. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, you know, that, I mean, that's such a great point. Like, um, I, th- I think it's, uh, somewhere Frederick Jameson says this, that like, well, what we have right now, like in the contemporary era is, um, like a, a rush to, to specialization so that it used to be that, uh, philosophers, um, were sort of over the shoulder of, uh, scientists, like sort of like checking in like an ethical way, like whatever scientists were doing. And now that's like completely rejected. The only way that anybody could say something about the economy is if they're an economist, the only way that someone can, uh, you know, uh, say something about, uh, anth- you know, anthropology or uh, developments in culture is if you're an anthropologist and that it's been this sort of like atomizing, uh, specialization that has, uh, cut out, I think, a lot of interest in the humanities generally, not just uh, um, uh, philosophy. And I think that's like where our podcast is trying to intervene, which is like this, like we're offering this as not necessarily the only one, but like that this is like a genuinely like humanities based uh, mode of thinking and approaching uh, the world and cultural phenomenon. And I think that um, anyway, I, I mean, I like to think it's important. I hope that it is. 
Yeah, otherwise, what are you guys doing doing this podcast? Well, I like talking right? to Todd. I mean, <laughs> and I'm glad there's a record of it. So, <laughs> no, were you guys, how did, were you Todd's student before this? Well, how did so you know the, how we met each other is a lot less interesting than why we were both leaving the orgy at the same time. Um, but no, I'm, I'm uh, uh, well, I mean, not to me. I mean, I'm a really kinky guy. I like the meetup. No, I was, yeah, I, I was, a, I was a graduate student at, um, the university of Vermont in 2012. That's how, and that's how Todd and I met. You guys have the most popular Senator in the United States Senate. That's true. That's true. We oh, yeah. both like him too. That's, so. that's saying something, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. As opposed, yeah. to, fact, as opposed yeah. to Ted Cruz, right? I mean, Al Franken says he fucking hates Ted Cruz, and and he likes Ted Cruz more than most people in the Senate. <laughs> he said it when he was in the Senate. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. No, I feel like um, that. I mean, what what Ryan said is good. That that the, and I think Bernie actually. It's interesting that you connected that because I feel like he brings he brings universality into political thinking and political rhetoric in a way that we. I mean, that's similar to what we want to do in the analysis of culture and, 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 and the thinking about political situation today and thinking about philosophical questions, actually. So, I mean, your, your point about the psychologist, it's actually, I think that you were actually sort of went, didn't go far enough. Like, I think that if it wasn't an experiment on rats, it wouldn't be mm. conclusive. Mm. You know, like, I feel like there's a, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I maybe, you know, that at University of Vermont, this is a true statistic that the psychology department kills more animals than any other department in the, in the university. So it's a, it, it's a, that's a, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying you can't learn anything psychologically from rats, but it, it seems like to me that, Psychology should be focused maybe a little bit more on the the, the 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 human subject than the animal subject. Like on people and shit like that. On people, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and it's, it's interesting, right? Like you, we know more about frogs, right, or rats than Aristotle ever could have dreamed of. And yet that knowledge leaves us feeling way more alienated in the world we learn about than Aristotle seemed in his, right? Because he could ask questions about purpose and direction and, 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 and ask about, you know, universal questions. And it, it, that's, a, that's a bitter pill, right, to swallow. That's a bitter trade-off to get more knowledge about particulars, but you sacrifice that on the altar of any universal, you know, any sense, oh, we, I can connect this and that. that. That's a great point because I feel like, you know, Aristotle's unimaginable today. Mm-hmm. Like you just couldn't amass that kind of knowledge about there, but you're right that there's a certain price that you pay for the, all that, the, all that knowledge that it, I mean, I guess the question is, and I think this is sort of what your comment is raising is, is that, is it the fact of there's just so much knowledge itself that it, that itself particularizes knowledge or is it that we still could have a, like we've made a political decision to be particular. And I, I tend to think it's the latter. I tend to think that there were still in the 19th, early 20th century thinkers who were avowedly universalist in their thinking. And we've just, we, and I think it's, to me, it's a victory of the right. Like I, I have a, I'm, I'm sort of writing a book about the way in which Nazism sort of won. That, that is that its way of thinking, like the, the essence of Nazism is particularist thinking. And I feel like that's what we're still under the dominance of today. So we I get, feel we like get all that without the fashion too. Like if not, if it, it, why couldn't they win with, with, with we get the puffy pants and the, but I love that. So my father-in-law is a, is a postmaster, like a career post office guy. 
I was like, do you have a special uniform? He's like, what do you mean? I just wear like a polo shirt. I was like, gosh, if I was postmaster, I'd walk in, I'd have the puffy pants, I'd have things on my shoulders. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you could say this for Nazism, right? They That's had fashion. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also, I, I'm, I'm a great fan of the of the school uniform. Like, I think that would be a phenomenal you know, well, that's happens. right. I mean, like that brings up the yeah. um, I mean, that that is the point of uh, what the the right in America, uh, particularly uh, thinks of as, as freedom, which is just choice over things like that. It's choice over dress, it's choice of shampoo. That's what freedom is. Freedom is never um, articulated by the um, by the right or the left, actually. It, it, freedom is never articulated as not having to worry about something. I mean, I think like Bernie Sanders is, is kind of getting there with the push to Medicare for all, which is, you know, being taken up by uh, other people in the democratic party, but real freedom is like, um, I don't have to worry about what school I'm sending my child to, because I know that they all have this baseline level of quality because of, you know, investment from the state and from federal sources, you know, freedom is not having to worry about what healthcare plan you choice, but for the right. And like pretty much everybody is convinced of this is having choice equals freedom. And that's, um, it's always choice over superficial matters that don't have anything to do with basic human needs or like fundamental ways. of. Yeah. It, it sells itself as freedom from, right. You're saying like, well, you're free, to, you're free from all these constraints. You get different mm-hmm. shampoo choices and cereals, but it's not really meaningful for it because it, it takes a lot of freedom from, to get to freedom sure. for, right? To get to positive freedom. And when you're saying, that's a sort of incremental, okay, we'll give you a couple little choices, but they're, they're never really big enough no, well, so that people can experience real no, positive No, well, I mean, freedom. Paul Ryan even said this, like he was he recently was asked about the Democrats now embracing Medicare for all. And he said that, the, he said like the problem with Obamacare was that there were few choices. Medicare for all is no choice. And it's like, you can see people nodding their head and like, like a priori, like just having a choice is better than like the one choice you're giving being like completely like, like fulfilling at like a very basic level. I mean, I think that that's like um, the kind of um, yeah, I don't know, (laughs) Todd, like if you want to expound more on that, but that is sort of like the, the, the way in which like this, like right conservative thinking has uh, not, it's one with so many, with one over the the left has limited the, the, the mainstream left's ability to um, think, its own kind of progressive politics. Um, and, and like, is that idea, like, I mean, that, I mean, that's what, what, what Obamacare uh, ended up being, you know, the affordable care act ended up being this like free market solution to like a, you know, a public health problem. And that's conceding ground already to this, like sort of like right discourse of, excuse me, of choice, which is. Yeah. Right. I feel like, isn't that today the, the way that manifests itself is in this idea of tribalism, yeah. this idea that, that it's just like it's two different particular sects fighting it out when in fact i think the struggle versus between sorry between left and right is a struggle between universalism mm-hmm. on the one hand and particularism on the on the other hand so that so that if you once you think of it as a struggle between two different tribes or two different particulars then you're already on the terrain the conservative yeah, there's, terrain there's no truth whereas if you in, think in, of it yeah there's no right 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 yeah yeah. So yeah, I feel, that's, I feel a, like that's the interesting thing, right? That 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 you have the the biggest articulators of the there's no that your truth, my truth have become on the right, which yeah. which people yeah. you know decades ago, wow, moral relativism, postmodernism, all this is going to lead to yeah. You know, now it, it it there's an inverse now, which is just strange. It's very strange. I mean, it's it's like you know Nietzsche's line: "There are no facts, only interpretations." Like Kellyanne Conway yeah. Yeah. could say that, right? Like so so. But it is true that Nietzsche was basically a conservative. So it's, it's, I think it's an interesting, I think it's kind of like the, 
the positions have become rightly situated now. And I think it was a weird, that whole, like, I think the words are wrong that describe it, but like post-structuralist philosophy, post-modern philosophy, I think those words are terrible, but, um, but I just use because <laughs> well, everyone knows um, them. So they just uh, situate like, what you're saying. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel wait, like wait that a seven whole, second delay. No, no, no. <laughs> but that whole philosophy, I mean, that, that sort of any kind of impulse to relativism, I think is a, is a, is a right wing impulse. And it, 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 I think things were sort of missituated for a long time in the theoretical landscape. And I think now things are, you know, back right where they belong in, so, in a sense. Like, and I think our podcast is a kind of attempt to, put things right in that, in that sense. Yeah, and I, I think the irony of irony is like as someone who's spent a lot of time studying theology, and it's also, it's like the hair club for men. Um, <laughs> I'm not just the president of the hair club, I'm, a, I'm also a client. Like I would say, I yeah. would count myself a, a, a Christian. It's that when you see Christianity, which is ultimately a universalizing phenomenon, right? I mean, people like Zizek see this, right? Like, yeah. it, it, And for that to be enlisted in the tribal cause is fast. I mean, that's a, that... It, it, that is a master sales project. I mean that. I mean that is amazing Inc- that you could take something yeah. that is so has these radical kind of universalizing and and at the same time subversive contents at the heart of it, and, and then make it into this tribal establishmentarian thing. It's amazing. I know. I that's a great point. I mean, the heresy in contemporary Christianity is just it's mind boggling, isn't it? Like for the main thing is of course what you just said, the abandonment of universality. But the other thing is it's like, isn't the Christian doctrine in America now? It's harder for a poor man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to enter the high of the hill. I mean, it's like it's like they've reversed the whole thing. Like the Jesus it's, of it's, supply side economics like, we were talking about last night. Right, 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 right. It's not even heresy. I'd say it's apostasy because Heretics, at least at least in the history of the early church, were these people that were one side. They weren't dialectical. They weren't tension holders. They were people that yeah. would get one part of the story, but intensely into one part of it, right? Like, right. And it's more like, hey, we just like the the wrapping here. We we don't like the we don't really like anything in the essence of the thing. We just like, which is amazing. Yeah, but they but they cling to the form, mm-hmm. which is that's that's it's so. I, but I think you're right. Apostasy is the right. I, I you're right. Heresy is not going far enough. Yeah. What does Jesus say? You can't put new uh, wine into old wineskins. Jumps yeah. like you want to bet? I could take the oldest wine, the best wine skins. They'll be glitzy and glossy. Yeah, yeah. You <laughs> do a good Trump, Scott. I, well, I'm working on. I do. I do. You know, there's. I always think like there's something about the people that do it throatier. That's 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 <laughs> awesome. I mean, you're. But I feel like to do a Trump though, content wise, he's always he's the guy that like never knew there was a thing like a thesaurus. So you see him. He's always looking for the next power word. Like, I mean, we're so great and very great i mean very strongly and you're like dude there's this thing if you look up the word it gives you all these other words that mean something similar you could string them together yeah but you have to to get the thesaurus on microsoft word you have to like do like a two-finger click or a right click if you just put very in front of that word it's a lot easier (laughs) very 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 true there it is it's that i didn't need verisimilitudinous i mean who has time for that just put three varies in front of it You guys, like, so I, one way we could kind of help people get a sense for what you do in your podcast is you, know, you take words that C.S. Lewis says, you know, that when you assign people, students, an old book, the problem is not the words they don't know, right? Because a decent student goes and looks them up. It's the problems. The problem is when they encounter a word they think they know. 
and then kind of import all kinds of meaning and just move on. And so oftentimes you guys are taking words that people think they know, like, for instance, ideology, which is something that is used every day all over the place in all sorts of media, you know, whether it's highbrow, lowbrow, popular, academic. So people encounter the word all the time. But you guys had this great discussion of Blade Runner and the sequel and how, wow, this is illuminating regarding ideology in a way that's much deeper than most people. It's almost like the Princess Bride. You guys are like a Indigo Montoya walking around going, that word, I don't think you mean what it th- you think it means. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, just like to like the the. I think what we got into that episode, just the basic point for people who haven't listened to it is, you know, uh, ideology is not, it's not the, the study of ideology, which um, the main touchstone now is, uh, I think it's, it's Althusser, but it uh, goes back uh, earlier than him. Um, it, ideology is not like there's a right wing ideology. There's a left wing ideology. And we, it's not the same thing that we were just talking about. It's not this like tribal truth sort of thing. It's that, um, ideology is that which makes um, contradic- contradiction uh, not present. It is that which papers over the, um, uh, the, the, the contradiction in, um, I don't know, in, in, in thought, in sort of like day, daily sort of action. Uh, it is that which makes it uh, impossible to, to see the, the, the kind of, um, you know, the fault lines in, um, I, I mean, a whole uh, raft of like dull, human interactions and uh that that's when again like just that simple move to move ideology from uh you know something that is uh i mean the, the probably the best way to understand it is how like uh capital uh makes things uh like like certain kinds of uh, contradictions not like not not able to be seen like when you move it from that to like oh there's a left-wing ideology there's a right-wing there's an anarchist there's a you know what then it just it all seems like we're we're just uh, exchanging different um different things of the of the same value and nobody's nobody's uh, ideology has more value than anybody else so we just need to have talk and like and that's what democracy is it's just like we're like like it's a pendulum swing to see whose ideology wins for a certain period of time but like the 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 like farther uh reaching way to see it is like sort of how um i don't know we tried to articulate in that episode and i want todd who's uh better at talking about this than i am to kind of jump in well i would just say that that i i just very simply i would just say ideology and ryan was hinting at this ideology gives us a narrative explanation in that covers over contradiction so we get we get it we get a as if it's a kind of chronology of events rather than we get to have to confront the contradiction and also say that it's exactly right to say that there aren't competing, like there are different ideologies, but in some sense, all ideology is one because ideology is what covers over and, and allows us to exist without confronting contradiction. And, and any ideology that does that is ideology. So it's all, so there is a radical sense in which I think ideology is singular, not, not multiple. So if you hear people on the Fox News power panel batting ideology around it, then you know it's not a, it's not an ideology worth its salt or it's masquerade because once you could it's that malleable and you could bat it around like a shuttlecock and bam, it's not doing its job. Well, well they, they, right. Well, Todd's going to say what I want to. Yeah, I, go ahead. I mean, they're doing. No, I was just going to say I think that their their discussion exactly. of ideology is it, ideological. It, it, right. It, it's, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but it's hiding yeah, in plain yeah. sight in some That's way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I find Fox instructive for in that way. I like my spouse hates the fact that I've kind of a. I'm not a devotee, but I enjoy watching it because I think it's so instructive for how politics operates and how ideology operates. So I feel like, you know, 
just like the way that ideology gets deployed is itself ideological, but that's, it, it, it teaches in that way. I think. And like, and like John Stewart it, says, they do great television. I mean, Hey, at <laughs> seven o'clock, we're going to find out are liberals destroying America or not? And you're like, well, maybe they are. Maybe they are. Wow. Sean Hannity's going to tell me. Wow. It's, it's a, a great drama. lead. Yeah. It's a yeah. much better yeah. lead than, than yeah. the left has because of the, of an investment in, you know, Todd and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, and I think it's relevant for this conversation is one of uh, one of Freud's greatest insights that um, is not uh, sort of a popularly uh, uh, I don't know known or, or thought about is the idea that uh, information does not cure the symptom. And this is something that he that, that he experienced in the clinic. And I think that um, I mean we see this in politics all the time. I mean I, I think. I mean, what Elizabeth Warren just tried to do to use information to cure the symptom, I mean, it did, did not work. It will, will not work because you cannot, uh, you cannot, the, the, the fight that the, that, that the, that the left has it with it's the, and it's the same thing with, it's with vaccines, it's with climate change. It's that what they, they are convinced of is that if they can get the, the information to, to as as overwhelming and as like as great looking as possible that it will shut down the it'll shut down the right this is like the i mean i, I actually think like john stewart and like uh this this week tonight like with uh with john oliver i mean i think they try to do this too which is like the takedowns of of right conservative thought is like well we're going to disprove it with information it doesn't it doesn't like work like it's target ends up really being like it just it just educates a little bit better the people who already agreed with you i suppose and maybe there's a value to that but um but yeah it, it doesn't it does again the information does not cure the symptom the greatest thing well, i saw of the warren thing was tucker carlson whose tagline is like this show is like and with no irony says the opponent of all smugness pomposity and groupthink i'm like that's not even said ironically <laughs> like you really which is why it's so great so the irony is so great like and then yeah, what does he do yeah. with elizabeth Warren? he brings in an actual Descendant of Pocahontas, and then uses words like "Isn't this cultural appropriation?" Yeah. Like a guy, a guy that makes his living making fun of people that talk about culture. I'm like, this is such genius. I mean, I mean, this is this is like, yeah. you know, I, I mean, you could. This is real, like uh, uh, bizarre genius, but and maybe twisted, but genius nonetheless, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that they like the the way that contemporary struggle is figured is between enjoyment on the one side on the right side and then knowledge which is what ryan was talking about on the on the other side and and knowledge will never win over enjoyment and i think the to me the the catastrophe of environment is maybe the the most telling one right like like we have all the knowledge on the side of the left and there people are just and and all the expert knowledge and everyone's just saying we just need to do the the thing to save the it's in our own self-interest to save the planet we need to, and and People aren't able to do it because there's too much. I think there's too much enjoyment on the side, not just of denying it, but on the side of actually destroying the planet. Like it's enjoyable. Like I don't know if you saw the television series Mad Men, and there's this scene where John oh, Hamm yeah. they're having a picnic in the park, and he takes all of his he takes his his blanket and he just dumps all the cans and all their garbage just, and then they just drive away. And I thought, you know, that's the perfect. Like that's the kind of enjoyment that I think the right feels has been lost. And that's what they're tapping into with the, the, you know, the, with the contemporary destruction of the environment. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? 
Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. I feel like enjoyment is another one of those terms that everybody uses the word things I mean, but you're using it in a particular psychoanalytic mm-hmm. term. I mean, it, it, it would be shorthand might be something like the guilty pleasure, but th- even that's too conscious. You're talking about something that because it's limiting and, and, and helps you feel your finitude. It's not just pleasure, but there's at the same time, there's a sort of, you know, uh, it's the kind of what's the, is it the Google Dolls? You know, you bleed just to know you're alive. I mean, there's some kind of. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. You know, there's yeah, something so like that in there that, that, that makes it. And, and I mean, you guys did an episode, which before we started recording, I, I call all these people like you have to listen to this on Trump is enjoyment. Right. And so it, it's almost yeah. like people with Trump, it, 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 the most, the thing I was likening it to recently was that in light of your episode was something like pro wrestling or maybe even the way football the stuff we know about football now how harmful it is it makes it more enjoyable where it makes yeah. it much more enjoyable than baseball yeah. right or golf right. or something like that like where where you know you there's something awful or boxing right there's something awful about it so the excitement comes at the cost of this deleterious bleed right and 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 this is like the, the Trump, right? He's the ultimate form of enjoyment. Like Hillary Clinton is like eating your vegetables, you know? Right. No, that's absolutely true. Scott, it's great. So I would just say that enjoyment is there has to be some kind of sacrifice and enjoyment because what we're enjoying is some loss, like some something that's been sacrificed. And it always has to involve a limit and going beyond a limit. And And what Trump is great about is, I think, sac- both sacrificing and always going beyond a limit and 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 without that dimension of so and that thus enjoyment is always excessive and that's what contrasts it like you you contrast it kind of with something that i would call pleasure and but it's enjoyment that drives us to act and trump does a good job of mobilizing enjoyment and 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 the more and i think knowledge nicely we can sacrifice knowledge and freud freud has this this idea of fetishistic disavowal and i think it's tied to what you were just talking about like we like football, it's kind of like we can we can be football fans, right? Like many more people are football fans than boxing fans, even though the damage maybe is more severe in football because we can disavow that. We can like in boxing, you have to see it directly, right? 
Whereas in football, you can you can dis- you can say, oh, I just I I just like the way the plays develop and the artistry of the. <laughs> this is kind of what I say because I'm a football fan, <laughs> and the artistry of the of the players. But, yeah, in boxing, you, know, you can't uh, get away from it's uh, two dudes wailing on each other's heads. In in football, you can you can say like, well, it's just the dangerous plays that hurt them, but it's not. It's every play that's. The, it's it's right. just like the Jesuit, the Catholic uh, theory of double effect, right? Well, you could bomb the school that was hiding the weapon of mass destruction because if you bombed it and no kids were killed, you wouldn't fly back and shoot the kids. Well, well, you know, I don't. I mean, look, I don't need I, I don't need somebody's life to be ruined and and, and disabled for the play to be exciting. That's just, just about, yeah. you know, I'm perfectly happy if it doesn't happen. <laughs> all right, all right. Right. But it's also, I think it's even like, don't you think like eating meat is another way? Like we don't, we keep the slaughterhouse far away from the restaurant. Like there, you don't have the restaurant right next to the slaughterhouse, but you nonetheless, like the, the, the fact that sacrifice, like, I think if ever a perfect fake meat were developed, like tasted just, I don't think people, I don't think people would like it. I don't think they would accept the substitute. So I feel like there is that, like without that, you know, touch of destruction and violence in the thing, they, it's unenjoyable. Yeah, I forget there's a vampire film. I forget which one. It's like they develop synthetic blood. Oh. And everybody, all the vampires are like, this is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so you guys talk about Trump. This is, desire explains this, right? That, that you, that people, uh, you know, that you, you, you guys talk about your podcast, like when Trump's like, the wall is almost built. And everybody is like, yeah, and they're not stupid. Mm-hmm. Right. They know the wall's right. not almost built, but there's something about, Again, it's like it's it's this sort of misdirection with the football or the violence. It's it's that you, you kind of you, you by sacrificing your the truth. You 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 can. It's it's not just fun and yelling and hearing the Pocahontas, but it's really enjoyable, right? And I think that's why the more you inf- like the whole MSNBC CNN strategy of informing, 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 like the more you're informed, the more it's enjoyable to sacrifice that knowledge. So, I mean, there may be a point at which it becomes impossible, but I feel like that's a pretty far away away and the earth will be destroyed before we get there. Um, but I think that's right. Like the, the, the one thing that's being sacrificed is what you know. Like you have to betray, and I think there's some, there's a great enjoyment in betraying what you know to be the truth and sacrificing truth for the sake of, of your political. Yeah. And the, the, the left, what they don't have is, uh, is an enjoyment that competes with that. And so what ends up happening is that the enjoyment of being a, um, you know, a, a, a liberal is in, uh, shouting down people who are, uh, living unethically on social media like that is the sum total of what it means to be uh, a a leftist and it's the the sort of the problem is is that um where left politics needs to be uh oriented like completely and like you know bernie sanders like to to call back to earlier in the podcast bernie sanders was able to mobilize this uh, uh you know a bit is it needs to be directed um at capital completely like that's the 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 left enjoyment needs to be about um like a tearing down um a, a kind of system and like as like todd was saying like enjoyment you you have to there there's something that you that you're that you're losing there's some there's some cut that you have to accept and like to to, to kind of to change fundamentally the like the day-to-day interactions like it would it would maybe it, it, it would it would change the way it would change what things cost it would change the order in which you're able to do things like i don't I'm not saying it would make things more expensive or whatever to have um 
to have healthcare for everybody, but it just, things would be, would be different. And it's in, um, there's not this sense, um, on, on the left that that's where the politics is going. So instead what you, what they end up having is that, um, they try to give the, the, the politics of the left is just this like, um, secularly moral, like superior politics to the right. That is, um, still, um, like individualistic, it's still based on choice. It's still like, this is when people talk about neoliberalism, this is what they're talking about. Um, and that is like, there, there's sort of a, there's sort of a facade there. And then because you've made this whole thing about being like morally superior in a secular way, uh, like Trump made up three different personas to like, to, to talk about himself or to like get out of lawsuits. Like he made up three different people and like, Elizabeth Warren is like probably a little bit Native American, but that's like a much bigger lie, you know, because she's on the side of, of of politics that's supposed to be this like moral superiority, like this unimpeachable kind of morality. So any tiny transgression is like a thousand times worse than something on the right because the politics isn't uh, mobilized completely to take down some kind of larger system. So that's, you know. And aren't even liberals going to turn on on Elizabeth Warren? Because I think something about the right enjoys converts, right? And bringing people in. So you can have all these bad uh, ideas in their mind, but then you get onto one thing and get persecuted. Then you're you're part of the tribe, right? Liberals like apostate, so they you know it's interesting. Bill Maher brought this up last Friday in his show. He's, that Gabby Gifford's husband tweeted out that you know that in light of the Kavanaugh stuff, is week we're gonna have it go. Well, I guess uh, the old ad- Churchill's old adage, you know, be magnanimous in victory. That's out. <laughs> Everybody jumped on him and he had to apologize for tweeting something that quoted Churchill. Right. And, and so you're just like, and, and it's funny because you had people like, you know, Eddie Glaude was on the panel, a guy I know from Princeton. You know, but and you thought like, Bill Moore's just like, come on. A lot of people in the country are like, come on, guys. This is just like, and the liberals defended it. You know, like, no, no. I mean, and Bill Maher was like, well, do I have to apologize every time I quote Lincoln? And they were like, of course not. And I was thinking, no, I don't know that on their logic you wouldn't. You know, and so they, I think you'd have to. Yeah. yeah. So this yeah. apostatizing is the enjoyment, right? But the problem is you don't build a political right. base. Of yeah, it's not. Yeah. Go ahead, Todd. Well, I, no, 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 you go. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say you can't have a, like, it's morality fighting against politics. And if you have morality fighting against politics, politics wins. I think this moralization of politics, it's certainly not on the conservative side. But on the left side or liberal side, I mean, I, I liberal, I find that I, it's hard for me to use the word because, uh, you know, liberal, like the American definition of liberal is so different than what the word has historically meant. But nonetheless, on that side, I feel like th- that it's just as you're describing, it's completely a morality play, whereas the other side is they're really fighting a political struggle. So it's, you know, it's 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 an uh, it's unequal, unequal terrain to fight. And on. the people that the religious people there don't even don't even kid about that i mean this guy jeffers in, in dallas he wrote a book two years before trump elected called oh shoot I, the title escapes me something else i was reading quoted it and and he was saying that you know martin luther's famous for saying i'd rather have if i'm sick i'd rather have a uh, a turkish surgeon a muslim surgeon than a christian butcher right <laughs> and and jeffers refutes this no christian worldview is necessary for our politicians and the ideas are 
and then comes to endorse Trump. I mean, <laughs> so it's just like, well, you're right. The morality and ideas don't work anymore. Let's just be pragmatic and, and Machiavellian and, and, and they're honest about it. They are, except I don't, I mean, I don't think anyone's ever honest about what their unconscious <laughs> That's motivations true. This are. Is true. Yeah. You know, so I, I think that like the, this notion of, of, uh, Ryan and I have talked about this on our podcast of a transactional relationship between evangelicals and Trump. I, I just, I don't think that's what's, I mean, I think that gives the evangelical movement too much credit because I feel like there's an uncon, like t- Trump, like if I almost think that they would not want Pence, who's by all evidence, a true believer. I don't think they would want Pence over Trump because I think Trump's excess articulates the underside of the evangelical movement. And I think that there's a real identification with him, not in his rectitude because he doesn't have any, but through his excessive violations of the very morality that they would claim to cling to. So I feel like that, that it's a nice, you know, it's a nice way of exposing, if you think about it that way of exposing the way in which a certain movement relies on this underside of, of transgression in order to sustain itself. And he's a larger than life champion too for them, yeah. right? Even though he's yeah. not their tribe, if you're, if you feel like you're the persecuted evangelical kind of uh, at the, you know, we, you don't have as much influence as, as, as the cultural elites and things. Trump, you know, what's Pence going to do for it? Trump's larger than life. It, he can yeah. out, he can, he can shout with a level of volume and that just makes you feel good that your yeah. gladiator Ste- you know, steps on the, 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 the on the battlefield and can compete like he really, you know, whereas, you know, Pence couldn't do that. No, he couldn't. But I really feel like there's a real there's an identification with Trump that's stronger than they would have with any maybe any other possible like and like, you know, like Jimmy Carter, who was a, the, again, these like sincere believers, like I feel like they would not get that same level of identification. I think you're right. It's the it's the performance of the excess that they're identified with. Like that's where these things that like they maybe wouldn't do, maybe they would do, but they wouldn't do. But they that but they fantasize about he's well, able because to do. Trump doesn't have like Jimmy Carter being a true believer has a like a, a, a faith and like a moral center and Trump does not. So Trump being like uh, a a a um, a moral blank is able to um, execute in like an, an evangelical like religious politics more so than an evangelical would be able to like like he. Um, that's I mean I don't know I don't think I have a follow up to that but just that that he he will he would go further than anybody who is like like sincerely identified with them because yeah no the, I, I can I just I want to follow one because this is I think Ryan's just a great idea he had on a couple of podcasts ago that we were we were recording he said you know today we live in a situation where religious morality is pretty freeing like you can kind of do whatever you want but secular morality is totally exacting like you have no you're you have no wriggle room like you're the the example you gave about Gabby Gifford's husband like there's no like you can't mit- misstep in any slight way according to the the liberal secular morality but religious morality you got a yeah. lot of latitude you got a lot of latitude to do a lot of things. And I'm, I want to give Ryan credit because I'm going to, if he doesn't write that book, I'm going to write it. And so it'll seem like it's my so idea. So at least we'll have a recording still, where yeah, yeah. there is a record that he did actually come well, up yeah, with it first. But, but this is, oh, I was yeah, just going to say, ahead, like, I mean, I think the formula is like, uh, um, it's, it's like the, the, if what is it like the, the it used to be like if there if there is no god everything is permitted it's the, it's the opposite if you believe in god everything is permitted yes Every, yeah. Yeah. and and yeah. and if yeah. you and then yeah. if you if you don't 
if you are a, a conscious uh, uh, atheist or, or agnostic, nothing there. You, you can do nothing. Like the, it, it, there, there are um, very, very few like like modes of living that are completely acceptable because, as I was saying earlier, the like the liberal politics is not aimed at capital. There can be no ethical living under capitalism. So because of that, any like all these like little little things end up being transgressions, and it makes it seem like. The, that the people on the left are are all uh, are all hypocrites, and they just want to judge you, and they just want to be PC, and they just want to police language, and they just want to do this and that. Whereas, like on the right, it's like people are having a great time, and they also believe in God, and that is like that is great, and that is and that is like more morally totally totally okay, and it actually makes you superior to these hypocrites, you know, and like that that whole kind of relation. Um, it does need to be teased out in a book project. Todd, I'll try to beat you to it. But um, but yeah, that's, I think, what the political situation we have uh, right now, like, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because I, I think about Martin Luther and what he would look at, what he would see with the secular morality would just be, it's, I mean, this is his, one of his basic insights, right? Like, that the law is powerless to produce what it demands. So if the ultimate law is, you know, love the creator and all that he's made, something like that, you know, but, but once you say, well, love that person. Well, I, I don't want to, why I have to, you know, like the constraint is opposite to that free expression, right? Or what he thinks like once you, let's say your spouse is tired and, you know, she's like, don't help me, you know, with the dishes. I'll do the dishes, right? And then at the moment you think, gosh, I'm pretty good because I did. It, it, it spoils the goodness of the act, right? Yeah. So I feel like his critique of the left, he would see that legalism just doesn't produce, you know, it, it it's, it's something. But also he thought the law convicted, right? It kind of, it couldn't do something positive, but it could restrain you and also convict. You realize, oh, gosh, man, maybe I really not, I am a person that, that needs mercy and that should make me more humble and open to the world. But it's like the right doesn't get to that conviction thing, right? It, 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 it's sort of it's this kind of libertinism that Luther can't imagine would really happen if you right. had real religion. That He can't imagine the person that would that were the cheap grace or something that would just say hey, the more sin I make, the more grace I take. Like Luther just thinks, no, that's not going to really happen. But I, I feel like they're saying, no, you can work. Trust us. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. I mean, the problem with the moralizing, I think is like to come back to the Gaffey Giffords husband thing is like his transgression of quoting Churchill is not nearly as bad as your transgression of buying an iPhone. Like if we're going to add up moral failings, like buying an iPhone, and that's why Ryan's point is within the global capitalist universe, it's you being an ethical subject is out of the question, right? Like you're, you're like supporting or, or helping to force kids to mine cobalt in the Congo, right? Like that's part of the, that's part of the deal when you buy it. I have an iPhone too, so I'm not. I said, hey, I'm not I'm not my response could be, tight. come on, we can't make an omelet without yeah, breaking sure. a few eggs. I know. <laughs> right, but yeah. I agree. But if you think of, I mean, I don't agree. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but the point is that, that like saying, like saying something about like quoting Churchill is, is like nothing compared to what Tim Cook and Apple does. And it's not, again, I don't, I don't want to single him out because it's the yeah. struct, it's the capital structure that if, if Apple didn't do it, some other company would do it. And then, you know, so, but I feel like if you didn't, you know, like, like it's, you cannot, that's why morality within this universe, like that kind of moral politics just can't, it doesn't, it doesn't really, for one thing, it's not taking a proper accounting of the way you would calculate morally and it, it's mm. unworkable. Like there's a no le- way yeah, a left politics of morality that is not aimed at capital will always fail. And, and the right will always succeed because like Todd brought this up earlier about, and then Scott, you were just kind of saying this, like 
uh, Todd brought up um, Freud's notion of fetishistic disavowal. And the structure is this. I know very well that X, but even still, I believe the opposite or I'll do the opposite. And that's exactly what you were you're just saying with like with Trump and and even, you know, I know very well that this guy is not a true believer, but even still, I he's a true believer. You know, he's 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 the biggest believer. He's he's the best believer. Very best. Very, very best believer. And that's the um, and, and, and that is how, you know, something like that can can continue in politics and the, and the left not orienting their politics uh, at that capital at structures like this. They will continue to have no answer for it. Yeah, I think that's right. And as you know, as you guys, I mean, I, I encourage people to to listen to that episode of the podcast, the, the politics and desire, because I feel like it it is it was revelatory to me. And I think it, it, it adds a new it adds a dimension to thinking about politics that I think we, we need if, if we're going to sort of get out of the cul-de-sac we're in. Yeah, like, I, I feel like any sort of story has its heroes. You know, if you're telling the story of, say, uh, you know, film, you know, you're going to, you know, if you, if you like film noir or mm-hmm. if you like Hollywood or if you like, you know, whatever, you know, certain pictures will emerge. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you're telling the story of the presidents, right, and you're, you know, one story might be like Lincoln, FDR, this one might be you know, Reagan or, or whoever. It seems to me like if we were telling the story of why theory that, that Kant is there, but he's not a hero. He's a he's foundation, but he's not a hero. Hegel's a Hegel's hero, a hero. Yeah. right? Hegel's Lacan's a hero. a hero for sure. Yeah, uh, and then we have supporting cast, you know, like Zizek and some other people. Like they're they're and and we have some, you know, I, it, I we could talk about the villains too. But I mean, if you were going to say, hey, here's the story of theory, you know, what a if you're summing up who the heroes and why, like how would you guys get that? I mean, you have a few podcasts where you even tell people where to start reading, but if you could just be, you know, with some succinctness, but just kind of like, hey, here's how, here's where we see it. Yeah, so I, I think Hegel, I think you're right to say Kant's kind of preparing the ground, and then because what Kant does is understand that if if we use reason to think absolute questions, then we run into what he calls antinomies or contradictions, and thus. We, he says there's a, just a limit to what we can know. We just can't know certain things. And what we can't know is about things in themselves. And then Hegel comes along. And I think this is why Hegel is our main hero. He's like our, he's our starting point. And he comes along and says, well, no, like if there's a limit in what we can, if there's a problem in knowing absolute questions, there must be something that makes that problem possible in the way things are. And so Hegel really is the first to think contradiction is actual. And I think that's the, and I think, you know, Marx sort of takes up on that and then thinks about capitalism as undone by an, a whole, and all economic systems as undone by contradiction. And so I think that would be our, I don't want to say our watchword, but like our main, our, our term that we sort of take as our starting point is contradiction. And then I think Freud, what he sees is, and Freud and then Lacan following him, is he sees the way in which contradiction inhabits the, that the psyche is constantly undone by contradiction. And contradiction isn't something, I think this is the key thing, contradiction isn't something that, that we abhor and we try to evade, but actually something that we're drawn to, that we're drawn to things. And, and this is what Freud calls death drive, that we're drawn to this things that undermine us, that actually disturb our our sort of normal everyday functioning. And so 
thus, you know, that, that explains all these things that we were talking about earlier. But I think so, so that kind of movement from Hegel as the philosopher and then Freud as the psychoanalyst and then Lacan as kind of the, I mean, Hegel was not the philosopher of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, but you might see our kind of development in that term. Like, like Hegel's the thesis. Freud's the you know the subjective antithesis, and then and then Lacan is kind of the synthetic figure that sort of brings them together. And then yeah, yeah and that, right. that view of Hegel is wrong, right? Because the, the, the this it's not necessarily that the that that you have these things that are that are clashing in history, but that the new thing is still has contradiction in its yeah, absolutely. heart. Right? Absolutely, it's not a it, it, so it's not okay. Then this thing's perfect, and then it breaks down a little bit, and we get a new one. It's no, there's the conflict is preserved just in a new in new mode and new, t- but it's there. Whereas for you guys, it's there's a little less conflict in there. <laughs> right, right. That's true. That's By the true. Way, I heard a I heard a Hegel scholar interviewed on. Uh, Robert Harrison's podcast entitled Opinions Great Podcast and he, he's was I think European and he said the colleague once said to me that um, learning logic from Hegel is like taking culinary tips from Jeffrey Dahmer <laughs> now I'm guessing you guys do not subscribe to that <laughs> I don't know. I I don't I don't mind that as long as you see that Dahmer is like that is subjectivity, right? Like, <laughs> like like he provides like like okay, he's extreme, but like that eating of the other people, like that's a kind of that's what subjectivity like it's more like you're eating your own flesh, not the flesh of someone else. But but I so I'm not totally opposed to that. But I resemble I, that remark. <laughs> but I do think that 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 you know this idea of hegel that that idea his idea of the end of history it's not that that's the end of conflict and contradiction it's that we're finally reconciled to the fact that we will never escape it so i think that is the and 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 that is my thinking about how marx misunderstands hegel because marx thinks we can actually with communist society get out of contradiction and hegel's point is no 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 like our freedom is dependent on contradiction and the and the end point of history is just the recognition we're never going to escape it. So I, I liked how you said that the, the problem with that thesis, antithesis, synthesis is it imagines a kind of end to the contradictory movement, but it also imagines that the antithesis, the thesis is something solid and not at odds with itself, right? The thesis is also, is always at odds with itself. There's not some kind of exterior antithesis. And I think there's a way that Hegel can help us think about every kind of political conflict, like immigrants coming in. They're not external to us. They're, that's part of us. Like we're, our openness to immig- the, the fact that we have to encounter immigrants is part of our own split from ourselves. So when we, the attitude we have toward immigrants is an attitude that we have to ourselves. It's not, you can't separate them. And I think that's the, to me, that's the great Hegelian lesson about how you relate just to other people. And that's why he was, I think he's the greatest Christian philosopher. I know Kierkegaard would be probably spinning over in his grave right now, but I feel like, um, I feel like that's the Christian idea, right? That, that, that you can't, like you're, you find yourself in the other. And he loved that, the idea that, you know, the, the idea of love your neighbor, Hegel thought was the greatest, you know, the great, that that was the great commandment. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, Kierkegaard is great, but you'd never think of him as the Protestant Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The way you could easily, you know, like argue that maybe Hegel is that. I think that, but I think that, you know, a lot of, it's interesting because the whole, like Hegel, shortly after he died, they're divided between left and right Hegelians. And the right Hegelians took the Christianity and the left Hegelians were all atheists, including Marx was one of them. So part of 
what I think is essential is bringing the Christianity back to back to Hegel and not seeing it as just this conservative version of him, but actually that's key to the most radical part of him. And I think, you know, it seems like, I think that maybe that's a project in the society at large is understanding. And I think you mentioned Slavoj being part of this, um, re re uh, articulating the radical nature of Christianity in the Christian commandment, I think. Yeah. And, and there's something also that, you know, you, that I think ideally this dialectical tension and, and the sort of ability to withstand the kind of anxiety that comes when say an ideology is seen for what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's something about this Lutheran radical Protestantism that, you know, Simon used to set Picado that you're, you're not, you're not as, he thought in the medieval world, well, you're sinner this moment, then you're rectified and you're saint, 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 that you're sinner, saint, all, all the same. There's that, that for Luther, the heart of Christianity is the dialectical tension. It never mm-hmm. gets resolved. And so you can almost accept the anxiety as not a problem, but something that's going to be there. So that I see, I think that that there's something radical about that, that ought to make people with these kind of Christian influences, uh, good critical theorists in the best sense, but oftentimes that's just not the case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right that it should be like that you can't separate the enjoyment from the anxiety, like the, like the, you can't separate yourself from the other. You can't separate. And so I feel like that, and I think you're right. Like that's the basic Christian idea. And it, you know, I, I, again, I, I think it hasn't, it should, you're right, that there should be some kind of like, there's almost like a pre-theoretical idea in Christianity. And Hegel thought that. Hegel thought like Christianity, if that's the the, the people's religion, they've already kind of, they're almost, that's all, that's all, like nine tenths of the way there to my philosophy. But, you know, I don't think it's worked out that way. <laughs> the first church of Hegel. Yeah, somehow, somehow I feel like if Joel Osteen Said, all right, this week we're going to go phenomenology of Geist here. We're going to start with the master-slave morality. I, I'm uh, thinking that his attendance would take a hit. It would take a hit. Yeah, that's too bad. Now, for someone like me who's not like as schooled at all, really, in Lacan, I mean, I'm trying to get into it based on your guys, your all's recommendation. Like, what? How would we? You know, how does Lacan play this sort of supporting role? He's a kind of hero that comes after the hero, sure. right? Like, it, it, oh, yeah. I, yeah. Well, if I just take a take a stab at this, and I'm sure uh, Todd, I'm sure we'll have a very good answer too. Um, we've said on the podcast before that the the like the most basic um, lesson from Freud, like if you want to to just to strip absolutely everything down, if you think people don't always do things for the reasons they think they do them, then you agree mostly with Freud and can read almost any of his texts and get something out of it. So the same, so doing the same thing to Lacan, okay, how can we boil Lacan down? Um, it would be to to go a little bit further and to say, not only do you not uh, do things for the reasons you think you do them, you don't even want the things you want for the reasons you think you want them. And I mean, that would be, we, we talked about this the, the before the show, like that's um, on our show. I talked about how when people buy um, iPhones, they don't want the iPhone. They don't want the thing inside. They want the box. And I mean, you can go on. I was just looking at this. Um, I, I, I was trying to get a copy of the third man on Criterion Blu-ray and it's out of print. And this is like, was absolutely astonishing to me. If you go on eBay, it's like $250 to get it like in the, in the box and, and totally wrapped. But there was someone selling the, just the disc in like a nothing case for 20 bucks. And there, there, and I was looking at that. And I'm like, there's no way that guy's selling. You can put a numeric <laughs> value on the, on the no, box. And exactly. And I'm like, so what are you buying? If you can get the thing for 20 bucks, 
but you you have to pay 250 to get the thing with the packaging like that's what people are buying that's what people want so like anyway that would be sort of um and this is this is a, a way of articulating um lacan's notion of object ah, which is what he thought um or the the object cause of enjoyment which um is not a, a great translation but it's the one that we've got uh into english um it, 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 he thought this was his um great uh insight in psychoanalysis and todd you should jump in here too probably. no he just I, ryan that's right he said that's the object is the one my one invention that's my one and so that idea i think ryan, that's a perfect example you could actually say what the price of the object is and the difference between so he distinguished i think this is his maybe greatest contribution he distinguished between what drives our desire and then the object that we want to obtain and so the object that we want to obtain, the object of desire, is not the thing that causes us to desire. It's instead the box, the 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 limit. And so he I think he was the first to see, I think in a way Freud didn't quite see the way in which the limit actually provokes our desire rather than being a bear. It's a oh, it is also a barrier to it, but it's the barrier that's necessary. And I think the understanding of the necessary barrier, the necessary hindrance is like to me, that's a pretty great insight. And it's why I was talking to some other guy who said, I don't understand why everybody's not a, why we're not just nudists. And I said, said, well, isn't it because like, there's nothing to like nudity would cease to be anything if we were all nude. Like, like the clothes are, are clothes serve and like they function all the time as object as this thing that eroticizes and makes nudity desirable because nudity would just be nothing if it existed all the time. And I think that's, you know, I think that idea and the box idea and the, like the can around the Coke, Mm -hmm. Like, why is a two liter of Coke less enjoyable than a, than a little can? Because the can, the, it had the, the container, the limit is much more evident in the case of the can. Yeah. Like St. Paul says, right. The law, you know, where was sin without the law or the law increases the trespass, yeah, right? Yeah. Where it's, you know, don't step on the grass. Like, well, who wants to step on the grass until you don't step on the grass. Don't step yeah. on the grass. Yeah. 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 And in yeah. fact, oh, Lacan yeah. quotes that, that Paul line in his seminar seven on ethics of psychoanalysis. So you're, I mean, that's a great, that's a perspicacious <laughs> reference on your part. Yeah. So you said too that I've heard you guys say in the podcast, right? That where someone like Lacan is, is a big evolution on Nietzsche. Is Nietzsche it, it, part of the story in the sense of, hey, look, what we say with morality is really power play, and you know that there's religion, morality, these traditional things, convention are really there's power plays behind them, and 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 you guys say, well, that yeah, but maybe that's not deep enough because maybe actually you can do that pretty consciously, like you you know, you know maybe Nietzsche's calling it out. Right. And saying, let's admit that we do this, but it's not as radical as, hey, no, 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 no. You don't even know what you want. And that's a deeper, that's a deeper thing. Right. But, but it's interesting. You say in the middle, you get the great thinker Foucault, who sort of does something different with power, moralizes it. Right. And, 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 and says, well, power is sort of always behind things. And anybody that uses it is always oppressive and bad. And you think that's still where the left is. Right. And this Foucault sort of pat, like, hey, all power bad. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that the, um, I mean, I mean the that's I mean our last uh, the last podcast that we did, we were talking about. Um, I mean, we continue to talk about enjoyment because people explain things in terms of power, and they don't explain things in terms of enjoyment. Um, the le- the uh, I want to I kind of want to protect the term left as like for like genuine progressive politics, but like the the liberal um, you know mainstream mainstream left uh, response to to things of power. It's like it's like all these people on the right are like superhero movie villains. Like they're all Thanos and they have power and they're just like in, they're just like enjoying the power for the sake of power. And no, just nobody is like that. Like they, they're, they're, 
they they are having enjoyment and like the power is is the um like it's it's seen to be so if in the relationship between like power and enjoyment like power is seen to be the point and enjoyment is like i maybe at best seen as some side benefit but the enjoyment is the point and then the power is the side benefit um i had a friend who's a dentist who i was hanging out with last night is it safe what's that i love i love this guy i love dentistry he's been a friend for years and we're sitting there and he just explains he's like yo bro this is he's basically like trump you know it's what else do you do you don't even need the women anymore because you got this the aphrodisiac bro of the power and you know i mean but you're saying it's not like it's it's not that it's it's a strange you know like this is fun for this is this is but it's enjoyment it's not just i'm exerting power it's the enjoyment that that, that comes with it right right absolutely i feel like that for one thing, I wanted, first want to sort of apologize posthumously to Michelle Foucault because we take a lot of pot shots at him and our, like if there's, if there's a hero, there are yeah. heroes at our podcast that he's sort of the villain and, and it's, it's probably unfair. And also that's kind of like, like Nick Seinfeld with Newman. <laughs> yeah, but he's a good, you know, yeah. Foucault. Yeah. But he's a good villain because there's, he, he wrote a lot. If we had a bad, I mean, like, I don't know, Baudrillard would be a bad villain. I feel like he can't defend himself right, very much right. he's not yeah, very smart but, so, yeah. but yeah like hitchcock's idea you have to choose the mm-hmm. right villain and so maybe foucault we've chosen her but but the lesson of hegel is of course that you can't like you are the villain in some way so there, you, there there's no villains in in hegel's world except you know that if they're part of yourself but but to your point i feel like power like and this i think exactly right that nietzsche is the originator of this way of understanding things and and people say nietzsche anticipates freud i think that's absolutely wrong because power just as you said can easily become conscious like the like the lust for power isn't like maybe it's a little unpleasant but it's not it's 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 easily assimilated to consciousness and and enjoyment however it's because and desire because it undermines our self-interest it is not assimilable to consciousness. It's unconscious. And I think it's easy to understand Trump as a figure of power, but I think that misunderstands him. And I think it's to, to think of him instead as somebody striving for enjoyment and trying to parade. And, and he really tries to perform enjoyment for his spectators. And I think that's why he, he incessantly does these rallies because I think alone by himself, I feel like he's there. He, he's impoverished in terms of enjoyment. And so he has to go to these rallies and he enjoys, it's an interesting kind of like symbiotic relationship where neither one is actually enjoying, but they're, they're the each other. enjoying yeah, the other. That's so great. Yeah, and because yeah. like, I think um, Todd and what you were saying, like the, um, the, the way that like, you can tell that like the, the power um, narrative is false is that like, if, if, if the, if the explanation is that um, the people who, who support, uh trump like you know uh like the you know people on the donald on on reddit or whatever like the the or or the people who attend his 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 rallies like what they are uh caught up in is is in the power and the power of this leader then they would recognize that his power like as like as a as a land uh, as a real estate guy as a as a president it comes from having dominion over them his power is over right. them. And so that's how you know that the power narrative is completely, it's just, it's not, it's not false. What they are in, what they're getting out of it is not the power. It's the, it's the enjoyment. It's him as a figure of enjoyment through with, so they can enjoy his transgressions against what they see as like an, you know, an overly oppressive, like secular morality um, uh, perpetrated by uh, mainstream Democrats. I have a friend who's, uh, who's an Episcopal, 
priest in New York, rector of a wonderful parish down. He always says, we're all, he always, I've heard him say his sermons a few times. He says, you know, we're all three days away from being a tabloid story. And a lot of days I feel like I'm on day two. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting because the, the enjoyment stuff, we, when you read of somebody like the, one of these politicians or celebrities who has this awful kind of self-sabotage, self-destruction, you know, how could he do that? Well, it sounds like from your guys' perspective, it's like, why aren't exactly more people right. doing That's it? Like, it, it it's it's because we're, yes. we're all, we we need to self-sabotage. Yes. So like, you know, there's sort of like, we're all going to have these, you know, we're all edging towards the tabloid thing because otherwise... You know, how could we bear the thing, right? <laughs> I what I like about I think that's absolutely true. And I think like even people who are seem to be like doing they're doing their most not to do it, they're doing it in the like I was a p- compulsive runner and I ran my I ran in the extreme cold and I ended up like contracting a series of pneumonias because of my running and then I I fell on the ice I knocked my teeth out so all those like even in the effort to keep myself perfectly fit and 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 survive and just and 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 be healthy even that ends up being part of the way I I sacrifice myself so I think that what's interesting is there's no way out of it like you can't you can't like pay really extra close attention to trying not to but I think you're right like it's surprising that we don't and I think people just hide it I think that's why we don't see it as often but I think you could make the tabloid story out of everybody out of everybody I don't think there's like I don't think there's I don't think it's like certain people slip up I think you could do that if you just if you examined and everybody correctly I think you would see the the tabloid you remember, story oh sorry it's I was, funny I was too. Gonna say you remember in Rear Window like when when uh, Jimmy Stewart is being like talked down by his a cop friend he says like it's a private world you're looking into and he says you don't know what people do like it could look strange to anybody i think that that's i mean that's todd's point yeah <laughs> right 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 and it's so interesting to me that you you know saint paul in Romans seven says you know I, this, I, this is what it is i do what i don't want to do what i don't want to do i do and it's and then luther really picks up on this and, and and sort of says this is this is the human condition and we're you know and this and it seems to me that this is where that strain of Christianity has such a has such import and such because it can offer a picture of human life like this and, and offers the means for kind of okay you can live with the, you know the, that this is the human condition you don't have to escape from it you, 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 in fact you, you're more alive when you aware but you don't hear that peddled <laughs> yeah yeah because it's not <laughs> at a, all I don't I think it's not an attract I think that it's it's because isn't it because. Christianity has been so assimilated into the logic of American capitalism. And so there has to be this, like, we're moving toward the end of that antagonism, not toward the sustaining of it. And I think that's why that's not peddled. Like it can't, yeah. it doesn't sell, you know? Yeah. Joel Holstein isn't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> selling it. Yeah. No. Yeah. So you guys, as, I mean, I could talk to you all day, but this is, you know, and maybe people, there are some people that could like listen all day. Who knows? But uh, if so, we should take it on the road somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. But, <laughs> charged by the hour. No, right, you know. So it, it is, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of listeners to this podcast that are people that like to think about the stuff and readers and, you know, are not professional academicians, many of them, but they're, you know, but this stuff really, you know, really enlivens them. I wonder, are there short books or books that are, that people, that would quickly get them into the place where they could 
really i mean that no one would have to do any reading to listen to your podcast because you guys are really good explainers of things but but would it make the process more worthwhile if they were to read like one or two things i want to i want to jump in over todd because he's not going to recommend himself so i'm going to do that um todd is i i think um one of the one of the great explicators of um psychoanalytic theory and, and continental theory and i think for somebody wanting to to start somewhere he he runs um uh, he's the editor of a series of books published by uh, Bloomsbury Academic, and they are um, very various kinds of film theory and and, anal- and a sustained analysis of one film. And if anybody's into that, um, I, I would tell tell them to to get his book on uh, psychoanalytic film theory and the rules of the game because I think that gets into um, a lot of what we talk about, and it presents psychoanalysis in a way that is, I mean, like I think. Todd, you have a note about this. It presents psychoanalysis as, as like maybe more unified than, than it actually is, but it's important be- to, to have a footing to be able to see where there are um, various uh, uh, differences between like, you know, uh, different ideas or, or how different thinkers post Freud or post Lacan, you know, whatever have, have interpreted different ideas. So I, I would unreservedly throw that book out there and Todd, you're going to shake your head and tell me no. <laughs> no, I'm going to say <laughs> people shouldn't read my books. Um, I think the I think the nice easy starting point would be Hegel's Science of Logic. Like it's really it's short, it's really accessible, it's clear. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that book is like 800 I, I'm pages. Sure, and I'm sitting there thinking. I'm sitting there thinking. Gosh, why not just go with the oh, with the phenomenon? Wow, gosh, we're going to go there. Wow, that's the most difficult book ever written. I think so. Uh, no, what I think actually, I think Slavoj Slavoj Žižek has some good. Um, books and I think his that are that are accessible and really come on like that 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 confront popular issues and I think the, his book on called violence it's just called violence I think is real it's like it's short it's hundred and hundred and ninety pages I think and it's and it's it's nice and accessible there's another book called Plague of Fantasies which you know it has a lot and and what he's good at the one thing he's good at is he he constantly uh changes what he's talking about. So if you don't, not following one thing, he's quickly onto another topic, but he also really integrates popular culture examples. So I think those two books, I would say, I would say not mine <laughs> in particular. Um, so I would disagard everything Ryan That's said. Um, I, 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 but, I, can, I can deal with that. <laughs> okay. But uh, so I think those two, and I think that, that um, in terms of if, if someone interest, is interested in Lacan, I think his book called um, the four fundamental concepts of psychoanalysis isn't, terribly hard to read. And about Hegel, I, I, just a quick recommendation. I think the lesser logic is, so it's called the encyclopedic logic or the, the I don't know what it's called, the, the lesser logic. People know it as a lesser logic, but it's called maybe, I, I think publishes the encyclopedic logic. That's not, like the first hundred pages of that are pretty accessible and not so bad. And you have a book coming out on Hegel. Right? I do. It's called the, it's called Emancipation After Hegel, which I think, you know, someone, one of the reviewers said, it's like Hegel for elementary school so students. There you go. You should so, read that book. Know, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when is that coming out? Is it out yet? No, it's not out. It's out in like March, I think, or February. Something Great. Like well, I'll have to get it and have you back on the podcast. I'll send you a copy. So, talk, yeah. talk a little Hegel. That would be fun. And you know, it's interesting. You said something about Zizek and popular culture. And you guys do this incredibly well, you know, framing things in terms of, of pop culture. Do you think today, if an academic or a thinker wants to actually have an impact on the world and can't do that, is it just doomed? Because that's it, where we live, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I often think about this. Do you know the, the Marxist Hegelian thinker, Theodor Adorno? Like uh-huh. he was yeah. a, he scorned popular culture. Like he just thought it was, it was the problem. And 
I don't think there could be an Adorno today. Like, I don't think you could, because no one would t- pay it. Like, for one thing, the ac- academic world has completely redeemed popular culture. So theoretically, it's seen as like, not just capitalist manipulation, but the expression of mass desire as well, right? So there's that. But also, like, you just wouldn't talk to anyone. Like, it's the, it's the, it's our lingua franca, I think. And if you don't have a way to intervene in that, and I think Slavoj was the first to do that. Like, he was the first to really say, I'm going to take this seriously and see things there that are, that there are actually these interesting theoretical points being made in popular culture and people just aren't paying attention to it. Yeah. I think Looking Awry, well, is, oh, sorry. Yeah, just go ahead, very quickly. Looking yeah, Awry go ahead, is, is the, like, the, the first book where that's like very, very evident. Like, uh, like the, the pop culture is pushed to the fore. I mean, that, and that's, a, that's another book that would be a good place to start with. That's where I started reading Zizek and, and it's a book that, uh, that I returned to. And, and I think there's a lot, a lot of worthwhile. I look yeah, at look how turn. I turned out. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> on Scott, do you know, because the, the, his most Christian one is probably The Puppet and the Dwarf, which is his book. I'm rereading yeah, it right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, I think it's very good. Yeah. And it's it was his, so uh, Alain Badu and Giorgio Agamben had both written books on Paul. And then he, I think he felt left out of the loop. because, <laughs> And so he, that's a book basically on Paul. Yeah. So for, yeah. Well, Scott. yeah. I mean, yeah. And guys, thanks for, I'll have you back on too. This was great. And you guys, I, I mean, again, I, for our listeners, I can't recommend if you're into the life of the mind and into... Well, not just like that, but into the integration of sort of where thinking hits the road and allows us to be actually reflective in a way that promotes human flourishing. I mean, I think why theory is, a, you know, one of the best places to go. That, that, Thanks, Scott. We really had, I had a great time. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I interrupted Todd while he was saying that. Um, but yeah, I had such a great time. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, uh, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Todd and Ryan for coming on the podcast. Do check out their podcast, Why Theory. You will not regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.